John here again and welcome to part two of our new series on culture and the mind of Christ. This is, as we said last week, part two of the intro to the series. And last week we looked at culture, this week we're going to look at the mind of Christ. Now in 1 Corinthians 2, 16... Paul proudly asserts to his Christian readers, we have the mind of Christ. What does he mean by that? And what has it got to do with the stuff we were talking about last week about culture? Now let's just have a, a little recap. We learnt some long words last time. And we said that there were three things that together make up worldview, the way that we see life, the universe and everything, uh, the way that it all works. And we said that culture is a very complex thing. There are lots of ingredients to it all articulated together like a train, lots of subcultures. But we said in this series we wanted to zoom out and look at the big picture. We also said that we don't think about culture, we don't choose it particularly, certainly not the macro level stuff. It just is the way that we do things around here. And in particular, we seldom judge our culture against the Bible, although we do sometimes judge the Bible against our culture. So what does Paul mean by the mind of Christ? I, I guess if you want a key verse for this, then you can't do much better than look at Romans 12.2, which goes like this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now I want to uh, read that in a couple of other versions of the Bible because I think uh, in different ways they all put it really clearly. So the message says this, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. And going back a few decades, J.B. Phillips' paraphrase of the New Testament puts it like this, and I, I think this is perhaps the most helpful. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mould, but let God remould your minds from within. And the point we made last night was that culture, the way that things just are, tries to tell us what to think and how to behave. So if you can imagine me as I'm speaking to you playing with a piece of plasticine in my hands and at first it's stiff and it, it's hard to mould but as it warms up and I, I don't understand the chemistry of this but as it warms up it becomes more and more pliable 
and I can use my fingers to mould that bit of plasticine into whatever I want it to do. In particular, uh, a really important recent book by a guy called James Smith says that culture tries to shape our desires, what we want, what we crave, what we live for. And that is where it can get really insidious. So culture is trying, like that piece of plasticine, to soften us up so that it can tell us how to behave, how to think and what we desire. So I want to deal today with two very big and important questions. Number one, how does that squeezing and shaping happen? I said I don't understand the chemistry of plasticine, but I do think we can understand how that shaping by culture takes place in us. And then perhaps the most important question, how can we resist it? So let's have a look at those two questions. How does the squeezing happen? And the answer to that question lies, as you would expect, in the liturgy of the Anglican Church, and in particular in the baptism service. Baptism is the sacrament that marks us coming to Christ and beginning a new life with him. But one of the things, interestingly, that we do in that, or at least we used to do before we stopped believing in sin, was that we would renounce the world, the flesh and the devil. Now, those three things have been called the unholy trinity, and they work together to squeeze us up into the shape that they want for us and out of the shape that God wants for us. So we need to look uh, in a little bit more detail at how that works. And I'm going to uh, talk about them in reverse order. First of all, the devil. Now, I'm going to assume, as Jesus did, that the devil is a real person, a real spiritual being, an enemy of God and a hater of all who work for God. So if you're a Christian, the devil hates your guts, but don't worry because it's nothing personal. He does hate you, but he particularly hates you doing anything that God wants you to do. He hates it when Christians do what God wants them to do and therefore make the world a better place. He hates it when Christians talk about their faith to others because there's a chance that one of his servants might cross over to the light side as a result of our witness. He hates it when we do deeds of love and care for others in trouble because he loves it when other people are in trouble. He hates it when we make a stand for what's right against injustice, corruption or whatever because he loves those things. He hates it when we are creative 
in any way. Because the one thing that the devil can't do is create. He can only destroy. God creates. And so therefore, because he hates us doing all those kind of things, he's either out to destroy us, or to destroy our relationship with God so that we become useless to him. Jesus uses the picture of a, a wolf prowling round a flock of sheep in order to get one. Peter uses the picture of the devil as a, a roaring lion looking for his dinner. Now when we think about the work of the devil in our lives, we usually think about temptation. In other words, to come back to those long words from last week, he attacks our ethics. He gets us to behave badly because he knows that that will be bad for us, it will be bad for other people, and it will weaken our relationship with God, so therefore we're not as much use to him. And we're used to thinking of, of Satan as the tempter, but that's not the whole story. He doesn't just attack our ethics, he attacks our metaphysics as well, what we believe and our desires, what we crave. Temptation is one tool that he has in one hand, but that goes hand in hand with the other, and that is lying. It begins, we know, don't we, in the Garden of Eden. Oh, if you eat that fruit, you won't surely die. Now, that's a blatant, downright lie, and that's what started all this mess in the first place. John sums it up with Jesus having a go at the religious leaders and saying this, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's John 8, 44. And any resemblance, of course, to any politicians, living or dead, is purely coincidental. So he tries to get us to believe stuff which isn't true. He tries to get us to want stuff which is not good. And that is exactly what culture, at its worst, can try and do to us. But the devil is not alone. It gets worse. He is aided by the second member of that trinity, the flesh. Now the flesh is a, a, a Pauline term particularly. Uh, he calls it the flesh, the sinful nature. And it's the bit of us which has not yet fully surrendered to God, and the bit of us which actually quite likes what it hears from the devil, and quite fancies some of that stuff that the devil is offering us. So when the woman sees the fruit in Genesis 3, she sees that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing 
to the eye. This looks tasty in every sense of the word. And so though the the flesh, our sinful nature, is like those last remaining soldiers holding out in Mariupol, the last pockets of resistance to God conquering our hearts and completely taking us over. And, and when the devil offers us something, there is a bit within us which thinks, yep, that would be really good. You know, uh, another pint when I've already had seven would be a good idea. Another nice piece of cake while I'm on this diet. That, that does sound attractive. That gossip in the office behind people's backs. It, it's kind of juicy to join in with that. But then along comes the third member of the unholy trinity, the world. And that is the crowd watching from the sidelines and egging us on. And this is really where culture comes into play. The crowd are, are saying things to us like, go on, everybody's doing it these days. It won't do any harm. Just one more. You've got to let go of those old-fashioned ideas. You've got to move with the time. Nobody believes that anymore in the 21st century. And so that too works with the devil and the flesh on our behaviour, our ethics, but also on our beliefs, our metaphysics and our desires. And one interesting characteristic, this is kind of in brackets, but I, I think this is uh, an important point. When the world is urging us in a particular direction, it is often onto the easier path, the path of least resistance. It's easier to join in with the office gossip than it is to stand out and say, I, I really think if you think that about him, you ought to be telling him face to face and not us behind his back. It, it, it's that sort of thing. And uh, so often God's way is the harder way and the world's way is the path of least resistance. I, I think that's what's going on in Matthew 16 in that conversation between Peter and Jesus. I'm, I'm going to die, says Jesus. And Peter says to him, no, that, that can't happen to you. Take the easy way out. Don't go through that. Now we know that Jesus wanted that. He wanted to escape it. Who wouldn't? Uh, that's what Gethsemane is all about. But instead, he chooses that harder path, which is so often God's path. And he sees what's going on and he looks one of his best friends straight in the face and calls him Satan. Because he knows where that well-intentioned urge to take the easier path is actually coming from. So that's how it works. 
how do we resist? How can we um, stand against those onslaughts of the unholy trinity? The answer is that we grow the mind of Christ within us. We allow that to change what we believe, what we desire and how we behave. It's called sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, including becoming more like him in the way that he sees things, getting his perspective on things. Well, of course, that, that's easy to say, but how do we do it practically? I want to end with a parable, uh, but also a true story. Once upon a time, in the days of yore, deep in the Essex marshes, there lived a van driver. And he... Uh, I need to be careful what I say because I know him quite well, but he, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, was a completely messy individual. And he was the bane of his parents' life because his room was always in a mess and he'd never do the washing up. And, and he was just generally a messy kind of person. Well, one day... That van driver fell in love with and married a teacher. And that teacher was just the opposite. She was a very tidy person. And as you might imagine, the early years of their marriage were spent in, uh, whilst they were very happy years, there were one or two arguments about the state of the house, about the fact that uh, jobs weren't getting done, clearing up wasn't done, messes were left around. Now, it wasn't that the van driver was deliberately messy. He just kind of was, and he didn't notice stuff. And she would come in from work and say, oh my goodness, look at the state of this place. And he'd be uh, sitting there happily and he hadn't noticed that it was in a mess. It, it was just how things are. But gradually, over the years, he came to see things more from her point of view. And he began to spot that, oh yes, I did leave my muddy Wellington boots on the dining table after I'd been gardening. Maybe uh, I shouldn't have done that uh, and maybe it would be nice if I did do the washing up before she came in at night uh, and so on and, and gradually he began to see things as she did. Now 45 years on things are a lot better but it is still very much a work in progress. And some days she doesn't even think that the process has ever started. Uh, I remember uh, seeing a lovely thing, a, a woman writing to an agony aunt saying, uh, Dear Deirdre, I think my husband may have cleaned the bathroom. How do I tell? But anyway, things are better. Now, how has that happened exactly? Simply 
by living closely together, by him beginning to see things as she sees them, to get her perspective on things. And it's exactly the same process through which the mind of Christ grows in us. We live closely with him, we speak to him, we listen to him, we ask him what he thinks and gradually our minds conform and are transformed to God rather than conforming and being transformed by that unholy trinity and the culture around us. So here's a bit of homework for you to um, just sensitise you a bit and help you maybe to spot some of those muddy boots on the dining table of your discipleship. And, and this is quite a fun thing to do. When you watch adverts on the telly, if you're watching stuff where you can't fast forward through them, just enjoy watching them. But ask yourself the question as you watch, what is that advert telling me to believe? What is that advert asking me to desire? That's a really big one with advertising. And how is it telling me to behave? You know, what are the subtle messages behind it? Uh, I don't know whether you can remember a few years ago now, but they had a series of adverts for Special K. And the message was very, very clearly, if you're a girl and you eat Special K, you will get to look like that girl in the red dress. If you are a man and you eat Special K, you will get to have breakfast with that girl in the red dress. And there's all sorts of messages that the adverts are giving us. And a really good thing to do is to shout back at the telly. Normally we just sit there and take it all in and don't even think about it. Next time your television tells you something you don't agree with, shout back at it. I, I don't actually think they can hear you, but it will do you good. It's a sensitisation exercise. Do I really believe that? Do I really want that? You know, what would Jesus do? Those, those uh, little bracelets weren't all silly ideas. It was actually quite a profound uh, sensitisation thing. One more hint for growing the mind of Christ. And now I've put my plasticine down and I've got in my hand an inflated balloon. Now, if left to itself, that balloon will eventually go down. It might, if I let go of the, the spout or the neck, whatever you call it, it might go down quickly. And that, by the way, is why it's really important when you've just had a baby to... Uh, clamp off its tummy button as quickly as you can to stop it going kind of <laughs> all round the room. It may go down slowly, but it will. It will gradually become wrinkly and uh, not as big as it used to be. The pressure from the world around us will shrink us 
as Christian disciples. And so we need within us a greater or equal pressure pressing out. And that, I think, is what's behind the exhortation in Ephesians and other places to be filled again and again with the Holy Spirit. The, the air in us needs topping up if we're not to deflate. Well, there we go. That's your two-part intro. Next week, we're going to get started properly looking at culture. And we're going to go back 500 years and begin with theism and deism.